Welcome to Jesus Has Left the Building, where we hear from guests all over the country who have been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid outside the box, I mean outside the church building ministry, that has inspired us to think outside the box and outside the church building too. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, activists, scholars, authors, liturgy makers, where God's beloved community has left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. We are so glad that Reverend Dr. Anthony Scott is joining us for a little mini-series. It's going to be three episodes, and it is going to be Face Your Fears, um, Anti-Racist Conversations with Dr. Scott. We are going to call him Anthony because he is he is our friend, and we are just thrilled to be having this conversation. And what I want to say to our listeners out there is that we don't have a formula, and we are just going to engage in some conversations with Anthony as we learn from each other, and we ask questions of each other, and we just have this fluid and nuanced conversation in these next three episodes. So we're super glad that he has joined us um, this this month for these uh, anti-racist conversations. Yay! Yay! I'm so glad to <laughs> be here with you uh, for this time. Thank you for thinking enough of me to invite me back to to have these uh, important conversations. Um, it's funny when. Um, I, I like to call it a mini series. Like, I think that's true because most of our series become, you know, eight or nine or 10 or 12 episodes because sometimes Marta gets really excited in her invitations. Um, but we ha this have this mini series with three um, really, I, you know, I hope that these, um, these episodes are really focused and, you know, the same guest, the same kind of topic and idea, I think will help us really stay um, to kind of laser point. But I think it's funny that we're calling it a mini series because isn't that like in the '90s, like a mini series, like a soap opera, like you know, little show that you get? I don't know why that is. Funny right, that comes on like Lifetime Television right. that we got super excited about. Anthony, Anthony's too young for that. What, what oh my god. What comes to my mind is the mini series Roots right now. Actually, oh right, yeah. And um, yeah. Um, and we're getting down to the root. I think you're right, Mandy. That I hope that I hope that um, we can kind of do a quick deep dive mm -hmm. um, that will give people enough substance to hold on to and to uh, do their own investigating um, into uh, resources because there are so many out there. Uh, Marta, I think we were talking about this that um, there are. Uh, many so many ways that people learn and engage and um, in this 21st century time um, people are posting content everywhere so not only mm. are books available and our live lectures available but you have Instagram and TikTok and all these mediums that people are using or me mediums media media I don't know uh, <laughs> that they're using to to uh, disseminate information about um, anti-racist work and thought. And 
I think they all have something important to say. Everyone I, has uh, an eye to what is truth. And that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great, Anthony. We were talking about how um, people um, learn in such multiple different ways. And so offering a lot of different tools and resources in order for people to get the information um, is really wonderful. Now, at the end of these three episodes, um, we plan to have a live Zoom conversation with people that might be interested in getting on and having a conversation with us. Um, So as you listen to these three episodes, please write down your questions or comments about anti-racism. I think that the way I want, right before Anthony starts, the way I want to get started is I actually want to locate each of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so um, I will I will start. I am a middle-aged Italian-American. I'm from the East Coast. I am the mother of three teenage young adults. Um, I am a minister, and so is my partner. Uh, he is a minister also. I, um, my father immigrated to this country, um, so that is a big part of my story, um, and, and I love, I love having conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who wants to go first. Next, Anthony, if you want to step into that space. Sure. I am Anthony Lawrence Dunbar-Scott. I am a 34-year-old Black man living in America. I am married. Um, We have a beautiful two-year-old daughter together. Um, My wife is a a professor. Um, I am a clergy person who has been um, engaged in church work since um, childhood. Um, And I confess my call uh, at the age of 16, so I've always kind of known my my trajectory, um, and um, living and experiencing um, discrimination and doing justice work actively uh, has kind of um, led, coalesced and led me to this place. Um. I'm Mandy, and I am almost 40. Oh my gosh. Um, I know it's not old, but God, it feels old. My body feels old. Um, And I am super white, and I grew up in Kansas, which is super white. Um, And I spent um, 17 years in Colorado Springs, which is also super white, but more diverse than, um, you know, experiences that I had had prior. And now I'm back in Kansas in a little tiny town um, of 3,500 people in the center of the state. And I'm working um, as a chaplain in a um, long-term residence facility, uh, nursing home. And um, I am so grateful for this time with with Marta and Anthony and Marta, I, I appreciate um, you know the the opportunity to locate ourselves in in time and in space and in our own bodies because I think you know especially when you're listening to a podcast um, and you don't have the visual 
sometimes it's good to like know what you can know about a person's intersections right and like obviously these little vignettes of who we are don't even don't even say all the things right but um I think it is helpful as we engage in these conversations to have some idea of that so thanks for doing absolutely. that absolutely the one thing I want to say Anthony before you start is um for those of you who have not listened to um the last episode that we did with Anthony um we will put a link on the website to this um this past episode that is called failing into relationship and it's super great and it also gives some more context for um anthony's work and, and um, what he's doing um so it may be helpful in that location process for you to listen to that past episode as well all right anthony kick it <laughs> so uh i moved uh to denver in 2019 in august and started a um, chaplain residency program. And uh, in my first month in, in Denver, I'm thinking, oh, you know, as, as one who's been an activist in Ferguson and uh, on the ground in Philadelphia um, during protests and solidarity work, uh, leading chants in the middle of the streets in Center City, um, um, I thought that moving to Denver, I would have a reprieve from racism. I, I thought wrong. I thought wrong. Um, because that same month, Elijah McClain um, was um, killed. Um, his life was essentially ended by um, a ketamine overdose that was um, uh, done to him by first responders in the city of Aurora, um, Colorado. So racism follows, right? It, it, it haunts, uh, right? Um, Elijah McClain's story is, is so interesting uh, in that, you know, white supremacy um, attempted to confront him and to um, make him conform, um, and he did not. Uh, Elijah was, the story goes, walking from the store, and he had picked up a tea for someone to drink, uh, and so he was headed back home, and in fact, near his home, when someone, uh, let's call her name Karen, called the police on him because she said he was walking weird, and he had a mask on his face. Now, who knew that just uh, a year later, not even mm. a whole year, everyone would have a mask on their face. Mm. Um, so, but she thought his behavior was weird. It was not conforming to the norm, hands walking straight to the sides and those kind of things. Um, and he was supposed to be have no emotion on his face, um, but he was walking weird, she thought hadn't done anything, but it was, was being, his way of being was out of place. So she called the police so that they could put him in line. And they did. They came to him. They confronted him. He's, he asked for his space. He asked, uh, he said, this is who I am. I'm a kind person. I'm not violent. Uh, I don't like people in my space. Please don't touch me. Please get off. All, all of these things. And 
the what did they call it resistance and mm-hmm. to subdue him into white supremacy uh into conforming to um their expectation they drugged him and because um particularly white people always think black people black folks are older and larger than we actually are uh, they they gave him too much of the drug mm. uh, which which caused um life ending injuries for him so i start with this with that with that story because it's all about racism it's the perfect example and illustration you might ask what is racism well i'm glad that you asked racism is the death dealing conjunction of ways of being we call that ontology ways of knowing epistemology and meaning making psychology derived from one racialized group being and it's prescribed then as normative for all persons without regard for ethnicity heritage or racial identity so i have that that's a great definition and so we'll we'll, we'll get that um we'll get that published but i, I, I want to go back <clears throat> good job <laughs> i I want to get back to Elijah really quick because I think there is, there's a lot in that story um, to unpack. Um, First of all, um, he was a massage therapist, just, just for everybody out there to know, Um, like, you know, healing hands. Mm -hmm. He was what? So his hands were healing hands. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Exactly. Like he wasn't, you know. I, he he did this gentle work in the world on mm-hmm. people's bodies, and so it is. Um, it is I, ironic, and um, what is the word I'm looking for? This 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 young man who who was gentle on human bodies then gets turned around, and his body is um, is there's violence upon it right and um so i just want to sort of sit in that space for a minute the continued point that i think elijah mclean they encounter that elijah mclean had with white supremacy the continued point there is that white supremacy doesn't just stop at trying to at at placing a normative vision or image out in the world. If one falls short of the ethnocentric ideal in mind or body or spirit, so your body can be white, but if your ways of being in the world are not, if your ways of thinking do not conform, you also are in jeopardy or in danger. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. if one falls short of the ethnocentric ideal in mind, body, or spirit, racist will seek to correct it. Mm-hmm. Racist systems, racist um, bystanders like the Karen who called, right? Racist enforcers like the police tend to be, Right. A racist uh, 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 perpetrator, like the first responders were in this case, uh, they will seek to correct your behavior. 
Mm-hmm. And if one will not be corrected, then racism will seek to destroy you. No, that's actually, that is, um, that's so good on so many levels. Cause I'm even, you know, uh, so I, I just want to, let me just clarify some stuff. So there could be um, a young man who is not African-American, but is say darker skinned, um, you know, uh, but on paper <laughs> is white, right? Um, but hangs out with a group of multi-ethnic peers um, and sort of they all similarly have um, similar cultural behaviors, maybe based on the neighborhood that they grew up in, say, um, that person could be a victim of racist systems and white supremacist systems in the same way that a single black man could be. Yes. Because because racism is a is a is a fetishized ideal of humanity that is based on the fetishized ideal of humanity that 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 worships at the altar of 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 what of whiteness, which is a constructed ideal. It is it is there is no uh genetic biological category for white. There it does not exist. Okay, so it's a sociological construct that says that persons whose whose phenotype, whose features, whose characteristics are not in a certain line, um, can can are are free game to be maligned. So yes, a per, any person who does not uh, appear white um, will will or not be, be, or behave white or or behave white. There are um to to further drive on the point there are uh black people african american people people of african african descent who are um descendants of of uh enslaved africans whose skin is is so light in color that they are able to pass as a mechanism to to kind of survive uh, in the world, they're able to pass as white, where some folks, they, they can't tell by, from looking at them, from engaging with them, that they are Black. So if you can conform, then if you can conform in, in ways and be passable, then you can be treated as a white person and pass, and it'll be, it'll be fine. But if your difference is discernible, then you're mm. the game to be discriminated on against and that that's well, what about where your definition is so um helpful right because ways of being ways of knowing and meaning making right like um there are there are multiple ways that that norm kind of comes into play right so um it's not it is not simply um like and and for someone like elijah mclean maybe he has um he he's in multiple categories of ontology and psychology and epistemology right but it's not simply about the color of your skin or the darkness of your skin um but this idea of we we have this set of norms right and, and it the way that it all plays together 
is nuanced. I'm even thinking about African American, African descendants in this country who are clearly have brown skin, um, black skin, or however you want to please correct me um, around those that language. Um, but their behavior, they've been drenched in white supremacist behavior. And, and that has been the way they, they have passed is through that white supremacist behavior. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I do think there are, are, are many people <laughs> who, who get, they don't even know, like they don't even know they're getting caught up into it and, or they can like switch, right? Like, or they have to switch, right? To, to survive. Like, so at home, they can sort of be comfortable in their cultural surroundings and around their community, but they go to work, for example, and they're like, oh, I need to put on my white supremacist behavior in order to survive. And so then people are comfortable with those people because they have taken on those, whatever, white supremacist norms and behavior. Like what, what it, I mean, oh. and I think that completely gets away from the idea of skin color. It is this idea that we are so drenched in this system mm -hmm. of behaviors that is the quote ideal. Um, I don't know if I'm making any sense with that, no, Anthony. I, so I, please I, help I, me. Like, I hear you completely. And what I will share is that. Um, White supremacy is a God that seeks to shape and form us in its image and likeness. All humanity, all creation, in fact, white supremacy seeks to shape and to form into its image and likeness. And so um, as a way of, of surviving in the world, minoritized people learn to um, uh, adapt to code switch uh, in body, in language, uh, even in mind to thrive, to survive in environments that um, won't let us be us, right? Um, so, but if I will tell you, um, I had a meeting with um, a, uh, a, a, you know, one of the executive administ administrative people at um, a private uh, university in Denver. And uh, this administrator shared with me that um, there are not many Black students. Um, and for some of the black students who come, they they don't really identify with the black experience, they said, until they get here because their parents were well-off people or executives were this or that or the other. And so that status, that class status bought, bought a certain passing ability, right? But when you come to a campus of a university, you meet all kinds of people who don't really care about your class status because they too are students at the university eating the food that you eat and sleeping where you sleep. And so all of a sudden, 
this racial marker and identifier becomes the thing. And so for the first time, they, they identify with, with their Blackness and uh, have to find, are prompted to find ways of, de of defending themselves, ways of being in the world uh, with this difference, right? With this human difference. So one can live in the world um, not really not realizing why people will will hate you mm. and it's not until you come uh sometimes not until you come out of the space that has shaped and nurtured you and formed you that you are made to realize this mm -hmm. right. for me I went to a small Lutheran liberal arts college in the middle of fields of corn and soy um, called Wartburg College, where there was mm -hmm. a, a few handfuls of, of Black students. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it was there uh, during the uh, presidential campaign of Barack Obama that um, I started hearing um, people demonizing the Reverend Jeremiah Wright and his words, the Reverend Dr. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah uh, A. Wright Jr. and his words and demonizing uh, the, the Black church and saying, well, what is, what is this thing? And I held a whole panel called Amazing Grace, the Black Church uh, in America. So I could, so I could, uh, in partnership with the Black Student Union, of which I was the co-president, and the religion department, of which I was a, a part, because I didn't, I wanted people to understand this, this, this speech. Like one, this is a very educated man who's not saying what you think he's saying. Okay. If you were to listen to the entire sermon, you might okay. find you might find convic conviction and a prompt to repentance. But anyway, what I'm saying and talking about James Cone and all those things and, and people just kind of not understanding. And it was kind of that experience that radicalized me. Mm -hmm. It made me like buy every black book I could find in the bookstore, mm -hmm. which were, you know, mm -hmm. which were very few. Right. But it was that experience of being thrown into an all-white environment mm -hmm. that, that made me say, wait a minute, let me let me look into this difference and nurture myself here. Mm -hmm. It was uh that environment, that shape and that uh that formed my ways of knowing how to find safety and community. It was all of the all of the black kids knowing which um administrator's office to go into and kind of making that our hangout it was all the black kids knowing which table to sit at we sat mm -hmm. at the table mm -hmm. uh, we called it the table and that's where mm -hmm. that's where the black kids sat mm -hmm. right not because we were relegated to it but because there was safety there there was commonality mm -hmm. there right there was a space that you didn't mm -hmm. have to code switch right you didn't have mm -hmm. to put on you know it what that reminds me to say is that not all experiences of my minoritized people are the experiences of my of minoritized people in the world are not monolithic right so there there um there is no one way to be black there is no one way to be 
uh, a Latinx person. You you right. You're shaped. Uh, to be a, there's no one way to be of Asian descent. There's no there is no one way. Right. We all have um, uh, maybe some similar influences and experiences. Right. But there are nuances of um, of events of things said or done that that uh, shape you, that inspire you, that call to you, that that make you into who you are and how you are in the world. Well, I was just going to say that's the thing about, you know, white supremacy, this idea that there is some normative way of being is like, even, you know, like there's no one way of being right and so at some point and I think that's why intersectionality is so important right like at some point everyone is going to come up against the oh shit I don't belong in the norm anymore right because you're gonna get old you're gonna get you know you'll be disabled like you and, and you know there are people who maybe they get through life somehow always being within that norm but just that idea of that you're never going to be in the position of having to be corrected or destroyed because you don't fit into that ethnocentric ideal or you know whatever the mythic norm like it's so flawed and stupid <laughs> right well um i am I'm interested in this idea of um, what does it mean to disrupt? Perfect segue. Um, what are people of goodwill to do in response to racism as it manifests in systemic disenfranchisement, economic exclusion, resource hoarding, systemic and interpersonal bias? So you disrupt racism within yourself and within your spheres of influence. So when I say disrupt racism, what I mean is interrupting the success of racist actions, behaviors, and thoughts. Give some examples of that. So um, uh, there's a, um, a guy on Instagram, uh, his uh, handle is racial equity insights. And he lists uh, in a video kind of 10 things to say to disrupt racism that's going on in front of you in terms of maybe speech. Maybe someone is telling a vulgar joke or has uh, some insights that are, that are racist that you identify. You could ask some questions. You could say, when did you start believing this? You could say, I'm going to stop you right there. How was the person's race relevant to the story? You could say, I, I hear what you're saying, but what evidence that you, do you have to support that belief? Or that hasn't been my experience. Or tell me what you meant by that comment. Or you can't say that kind of stuff around me. Or that's pretty racist. Or um, I don't see it. I don't get it. Can you explain to me what makes that joke funny? Or you could simply say, wow, 
disrupting the the pattern, disrupting the rhythm, disrupting the trajectory, causing a moment of of pause where a person can say, oh, you actually don't agree with me. Racists Mm. believe that people who are white agree with them. Okay, so what if I say something like, well, I wasn't being racist. Why are you disrupting that? Or like, no, that's not what I meant. And they're super defensive. Then what's going to happen? Then what will happen is a pattern of is some dialogue and an opportunity to engage a person in some resources, some enlightenment. So I want to talk to you about, about resources. And, and hopefully this will, this will answer that kind of what, what do you do in order to be prepared? Right. So. But like, I'm sorry, can I just, can I say a thing? I think like um, this, this language of disrupting is actually um like it's so genius you're so smart because like this um this disrupt thing like I feel like you know I I have I have heard people um you know say a racist thing or a joke or whatever and I think to myself I should say something but what's it going to do? But this idea, like I'm having this little moment, this idea of like, if I just interrupt that flow, if I just like, like, even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't go anywhere, even if nothing happens, like all, even if the only thing I have done is disrupted enough to say, hold on, it's not actually the norm. Like there's some power in there because it starts to break it down, right? Mm -hmm. So I just, I feel like that, thank you for that, bringing me to that point because it it gives me like, it's not just like my guilt of, oh, I need to say something or else I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. It's actually like, even if it's really tiny, it helps to break down that that's there's not a normative here right this is a creation you're making in your head mm-hmm. I mean or I just want to I'm trying to what I'm trying to do is because this can sound so lovely like Anthony's so gracious and so loving and so um, wonderful in this space but what I want to say especially to all of the white people out there is it's okay to to be interrupted in some ways it's okay Mm -hmm. to be it's okay to be disrupted and and we need to get into that space of it's okay to be uncomfortable it is okay um that it doesn't feel good and Mm -hmm. and and that needs to be in some cases some ways become the norm like Mm -hmm. it's going to be messy and that actually is what needs to be happen and how can we get into that um place of um getting away from those white supremacist norms of politeness and that white supremacist norm of etiquette and that white supremacist norm of like name some of those other words in order for us to be a part of um, that anti-racist shift in our culture. And, um, and that is what I want to teach in this space. And so like, for example, Anthony, 
at any moment in these three conversations is 100% invited to disrupt Mandy and I um, um, in our conversations because that is that is what I am passionate about. And, um, and it hurts sometimes, but like it hurts the white person, right? But that's the whole thing is it hurts the other so much more. So if we can get into that space of like, yeah, that might feel pretty shitty that I was disrupted or that I was interrupted or that doesn't match my experience, mm -hmm. but just like if we can look and have just a tad bit larger empathy because our privilege is larger of the other, then we can start getting into that um, place of trust in community together, um, that that when we're in those trusting relationships, it's it's going to be okay. We and and then that's how culture is going to start to be shifted a little bit. I don't know. What do so you have to say about that, Anthony? So I'm hearing you say that we have fear that we need to face and to confront. Right? I think it's rooted in fear, rooted in um, of. I'm not, I'm, I don't have the right words to say. I don't have the right framework. I don't have the comeback. Well, uh, neither do I, right? Uh, but what I do have um, are resources that I have uh, 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 immersed myself in, right? That that fortified me to engage with the stuff in the world, right? So my my response is canned right? It is practiced um, so that when I go in the world and there, there is a situation where I don't know how to respond in the moment, someone else did. And I can use those words. I can use words that I thought of. So what I would encourage people to do is to face their fears. Uh, this is a framework that I've um, curated over my time during anti-racism work. Um, fears is an acronym. F is for faith formation. E is for education, A is accountability, R is for reflection, and S is for sorrow. So what do I mean by faith formation? I mean, if you are a person of faith, uh, to immerse yourself in the tradition so deeply, uh, learning uh, what your tradition says about people uh, in privilege and people in power, people who are othered and minoritized, right? If we're going to, uh, from my uh, faith orientation, I look at Jesus, right? Who who decided to come into the world through the body of a young woman, not only a, uh, just young woman, but probably a young brown woman, woman right? Who is marginalized without voice or vote in her society right and and i see that that god places god's self there right in the in the midst of the disinherited as uh howard thurman says uh i see uh from uh curating my my faith from forming my faith uh with an orientation toward uh what what god cares about um that James Cone says God is black, right? God, God uh chooses to be identified with, with those who are oppressed. 
right? So that's the faith formation piece. The education mm -hmm. piece It's all about consciousness raising. It's about uh, searching yourself, searching, uh, searching your own self for and finding resources around that that can shape you, that can inform you. Stop asking minoritized people what their experiences are because their experiences are not a monolith and it, it, it is a tax. It is an unpaid labor to, to dig into the resources of, of my human experience and to vomit this in front of you so for, for your catharsis or voyeurism. Uh, search out education. So it maybe that's an anti-racism training that you pay for. Maybe it's a DEI class that you pay for. Maybe it's a book that you pay for. Maybe uh, it is a podcast that you listen to like this one, right? Maybe it's some kind of engagement like that that shapes and forms you and raises your consciousness and also prompt gives you prompts for how to respond in those really tight spots. So seek that out. A, for accountability. You can't be held accountable without some kind of community. I want to drive home that that um, there must be people who are around you, who you who you curate, friends, family that you curate a space around you to say, hmm, maybe there's another way, a better way, a more excellent way to quote the Apostle Paul uh, to 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 say this thing or to think about this thing. Maybe that maybe that language wasn't so great. Maybe that thinking wasn't so great. Someone that you can confess to, I had a racist thought today, or I did something that I'm not quite sure about, right? There has to be a, a place that can hold you down and lift you up. Mm -hmm. uh, that reflection piece uh, the, is the, the R, the looking at yourself saying, in the course of my day, how did I behave? In the course mm -hmm. of my, how, how do I feel about how I behaved or what I saw in front of me? Is there something that I could do better next time? It's the evaluation, the, the examination of your, of yourself to say, what is it, what is it within me? Right? So, so often we, um, especially now are moving so fast that we take so little time to actually reflect so it is the it is the moment of pause. Uh, it is the disruption of oneself mm -hmm. and one's actions. Mm -hmm. Look at yourself to look at uh, the world to look at your interactions and say, "Is it was there a better way to be? It, it is what I have done right? Am I all right with what I have done?" Um, and mm -hmm. then sorry. Um, that I think there's so much grief in anti-racism work especially for folks who are white right because you you learn um in the consciousness raising uh of the the things that people who are white are responsible for that that they had nothing to do with right they were born into this system um that uh where where white people enslave black people right people of African descent, born into a system where a Supreme Court justice says that Negroes have no rights, which a white man is bound to respect. All that happened before either of you, Mandy or Martha, were born, right? Mm -hmm. But you learn these things and have to hold these things. And it's, and so often people rush to, I'm not a racist. And I think that anger is maladjusted grief. 
Mm-hmm. And it's grief that it has to be set with. You have to, you are empowered, I think, to be sorrowful and to say, I did not think that I was doing that thing. Mm-hmm. Is that really how I'm seen in the world and operating? I think those uh, five elements, those structures of facing your fears uh, can empower you to do the work of disruption that's necessary. All, all these things, this formation piece is what empowers you to do activism, to actually show up on front lines or back lines and to uh, thwart the success of racist ideas, uh, racist actions um, without doing harm. Yes, you know, I, and we have talked about this, Anthony, I, I, I want, there's two things, because I love that acronym so much, and there's so much to unpack. And so I hope that like, in our zoom conversation that we have at the end, we could really have some conversations around that. Um, one of the things that I want to do is um, normalize, I don't know if, if the word is normalize or not, but um we need, we do need to get comfortable with this idea of being racist and being in a racist culture. And so what does, what does it mean to use that word? Um, more predominantly, um, I am, and, and, and even in, I could have done in, in stating my location, I am a white Italian American, um, born in the United States in a racist system. Or, and which then therefore makes me racist. And what does it mean to name that on a regular basis instead of it somehow being a, a dirty word or even a place of shame, even though it is shameful, but what does it mean to name that um, in a way that then people can really start to unpack that, which then leads me to one of the questions I know that will come up and have come up in the faith communities that I have served is how do I find communities where I can learn from, right? Like if if I am in, we are in uh, the United Church of Christ institutionally, it is a predominantly white church, right? Um, And so most of our faith communities are white. So then how do you find communities in order to do this fear work um, in a, in a place that will be actually productive? So good questions. There's a, um, now I'll start with the first thing and then work, make, work my way back. There's a comedian named, uh, or at least her stage name is Imani Janae. And she's located, I think, in Portland, Oregon. And she has this hilarious um, uh, joke in, where she's like, you know, um, you know, I want to help the white people out. She, she starts out and she says, you know, you think it's such a bad thing. I'm paraphrasing here. You think it's such a bad thing to be racist, but it's like being told... Um, that your breath stinks. You can fix it. So it's not that big a deal. Right. 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 It's, we actually need to post that. You need to send that to Mandy. We need to somehow post that. So it's it's like it's like the concept of sin. 
some in our in our you know progressive i use air quotes here uh progressive feel uh theological uh christian circles you know abhor the term sin abhor that that kind of language um but sin is something you can fix i don't know why people think it's so bad mm-hmm. like you fix sin by repentance Mm-hmm. And in the Hebrew understanding, it's turning around, like literally doing a, a 180. In the Greek understanding, we use they use the word metanoia. It is a changing of one's mind. So you can you can like literally stop sinning. You can stop whatever infraction or action that you are taking that's separating you from God and humanity, right? So you can walk yourself back from that thing. And so too is the case with racism. And you do that by nourishing yourself, right? You do that by learning yourself. You do that by being accountable to a community. You can fix this thing. A racist is a, is a, 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 thing that you are doing and participating in, but you can choose not to do, think, or participate in that system, right? Not only to not do it, but to it because it's not enough just to not do it, you must actively turn around and walk back the other way. You must act, actively be anti-racist. But the thing is, is about, you know, bad breath is that it will come back. So you have to actually brush your teeth on a regular basis in order to keep yourself in check. And so like, we're never going to become hundred percent anti-racist. Like that's actually not the goal, right? The goal is, is to constantly be working, to constantly be in action, to constantly be in relationship with people, to hold you accountable. So it is very action oriented and it is sort of a regular practice of going up to the bathroom and stinking brushing your teeth like you need to find ways in order to hold yourself accountable so you're not walking around with bad breath aka that you're not walking around racist behaviors all the time i think that right i think that well to use your the uh the uh a uh, number that you used, but to be anti-racist is not a about 100% of a way of being, but 100% of a way of doing. Commitment, right? To always be checking yourself, always be challenging yourself. I had someone say to me uh, in a facilitation, they said to me, um, you know, you're making me feel like I have to walk around on eggshells with what I say. And I don't like that. And uh, this this setting that I was in was a um, Christian setting. And so I said, but as a child of God, who's been, who's been shaped and formed in the, in the image of God, if we believe that of all of humanity, wouldn't you want to treat someone who's made an image in the image and uh, likeness of God with uh, respect and with tenderness and with care? Like, each person is worth that consideration. They're worth the paw. Right? Like it's it's hard to walk on eggshells and that feels yucky and I don't want to do that. Well, suck it up. If we love each other and we care about each other and we want, you know, you you use the language, what are people of goodwill to do? If you are of goodwill, take that care. Walk around on eggshells, be tender, be gentle, 
and know like when you are walking on eggshells, you're going to break some. And then what do you do? Well, and, and I think that for me comes back to, cause there's been many times that I've been in conversation with Anthony and I'm like, you know, catching myself every two seconds. I mean, he knows this. I'll ask him like, Ooh, should I not have said that? And then he'll either say, you know, no, that was fine. That's not a big deal. Or like, well, you might want to have said this. And he's super relational and gentle with me because I think that that also comes to the place of like back to that community place. When you're in community, when you're in relationship, you gain this mutual respect and trust of each other where I can say I messed up and Anthony can tell me whether I did or not. And I'm not going to be like, so torn up and think he is so mad at me and hates me because we have this mutual respect and relationship and we're in community together. And so it is cultivating those spaces where I think Anthony genuinely trusts (laughs) that me, um, that I am, I'm trying really hard. (laughs) And, um, and so therefore, yes, I might mess up in that trying really hard, but that's okay because we're in relationship and in community together, right? Um, so I think those two things are key. It is discomfort and it is community. And, and for our listeners out there, what does it look like for you to find community of accountability and also to be comfortable in the discomfort, right? Um, that would be that, I mean, those two things are hard. I mean, it's challenging. Right. And it, it takes all of the engagement, uh, that I, that I mentioned, uh, and I'll, I'll give you, um, this acronym and the graphic or something to put, to put up, but like, what do we lean and depend on in order to help us through tough times or through difficult situation? We lean on our faith, we lean on our community, and at a, at a certain point, we need to navel gaze, we need to reflect and say, you know, what's what's going on here? What What is this grief really about, right? Like, all, all of those things, things you engage in the course of dealing with things that are new to you, that are difficult for you, right? And the same goes with racism, right? The same goes with actively working to combat racist systems uh, in the world. That is the disruption of racism within yourself. Raising consciousness, right? Uh, developing a community around you, but finding belonging in a community um, that that holds you accountable to another another standard, like that is disrupting the racism within self, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's sometimes easy to call out the behaviors of others because you are not them. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of be a bit objective in observing their behavior and say, oh, no, eh," you know, but it's, it's more difficult sometimes, oftentimes to do that work with yourself. And that's why it's important to do all these things and engage in community so that a community can look at you and hold you with love and endearment and say, that was out of this world. You need to 
uh, fix that, right? They can they can hope during that, telling you the truth in love. And why it's so important for you know for those of us who I call ourselves Christians, like there's so many parallels with this um, anti-racism work and what I think we intend Christian communities to be like it it's actually the same work I would say right and, and like it Very we, same. Can, we cannot separate anti-racism work from the work that we are called to do as Christians and faith people of faith right this is how we work to disrupt racism within our spheres of influence we face our pe- our fear and empowered by our learnings and community, we call attention to racism as we see it taking place. And the moment of pause that our words might give would cause a disruption in their thinking or the action so that they stop, they apologize, or even seek to make a reparation, repair for their wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this it's so good. I um I'm really looking forward to um these next two conversations because I feel like we have just like, you know taken one little chunk at the ice at the iceberg, right? Um I, that's not the right analogy, but you know what I mean. Um like there's so much to unpack here. And one of the things I appreciate so much, Anthony, is the way that you are giving us like this face your fears thing is so powerful. And for listeners, um, there will be access to um, these resources on um, our social media and also on our website, jhltb.com, so that you can see these things um, and, and return to them um, so, that, so that you can start practicing. And I love this idea of like 100% of the time doing, not 100% of the time being. So um, thank you, Anthony, for joining us. Um, And we look forward to our next episode next Monday. Yes. And so this week, Disrupt, that's your work. That's your practice. Next week, we will learn about discredit. Yep. Can't wait. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash jhltb. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.